morning. Goodness gracious. Here's the thing, though, I was thinking about, because we could be like, man, it's chilly in here. It's a drag. But you know, there are people who go down to Bellevue and pay like over 100 bucks an hour for cryotherapy. You're getting it for free today. This is, this is fantastic. So I'm like, all right, I just got to take it off and be like, okay, this is, this is okay. This is like the, just kind of some kind of reparative therapy for me right now. That's fantastic. So uh, as we get underway, you know, I was thinking, I had recently somebody asked me uh, a question about how do you prepare messages, you know, and they wanted to know kind of the style and structure and the methodology I used. And I was thinking about this as it relates even to the series that while there's a lot of different things I engage in to prepare, at the core of what I'm really doing, honestly, is I'm just trying to figure out how I can live my life as faithfully as possible for Jesus. I, I work on that through the week. I take a lot of notes. I kind of craft an idea around that. And then I'm sharing with you my devotional life on Sundays, basically. It's like, I, I'm in it with you, you know? I, I'm trying to always look and go, man, how can I grow? How can I improve? And a lot of that is just, how can I be reminded of that which I know? And, and today is very much about that. In other words, what I'm not seeking to do today and what I've not sought to do in the series is to bring a lot of novelty to the equation, but rather kind of recollection to say like, all right, what is it that I tend to forget that I need, be, need to be reminded of? Because I find that's probably true for a lot of us. Like, I'll be going through points, and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I knew that. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. I should do that again. I should do that more often, and I need to pick that back up. That's the spirit of things. And today is no exception. We're closing out the series. We're wrapping it up. But today is really in the spirit of reminder. So that we go, oh, aha, that's right. I should always keep these things in mind so that I can be more strengthened and faithful in the things of God. And with today's topic, I go, these things are particularly of value. At least they have been to me. I hope they are for you. Because we're dealing with messy life. That life in all of its forms and functions, it can be messy in all sorts of ways. And so we want to see where Jesus meets messy life. Now, uh, if you would like to take notes with us today, we have an app. There are notes inside the app. You can just kind of start scrolling down through those and filling in the blanks and everything else. And then I hope in all of this, you come back to these things every once in a while to be like, oh yeah, that centers me and prepares me for what I most need to do. But with that, I'm gonna go ahead and pray for us this morning, get our hearts a little bit settled, and then we'll dive right into what Jesus has for us today. So if you would pray with me, that'd be awesome. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for the fact that we can run to your grace, seek your grace, find strength in your grace for life. And so my heart is that again today, we're not learning new things, but rather we're being reminded of old things that are fresh every day when we do these. And so we love you, we look to you, we thank you, and we need you, Jesus. And so I pray you guide us today in your good and kind name. Amen. So last week, uh, we looked at hard life. Right? And, and what we noted there is that in all the other topics we've looked at in the series, marriage, parenting, sex, communication, work, money, all these things, we noted that all of those things, what make those things challenging is they can be hard or have hard seasons. But if we drill down hard just a little bit more and we go, what's the core of what makes things so hard in life? I think that answer is today's subject, which is messy. Life is is messy. 
And yet Jesus seeks to meet us in our messy lives. He wants to bring life to the messiness. He wants to bring recovery and strength and help in those messy spaces. But the question then kind of becomes in all of this, well, why is life so messy? Now, my heart in this whole series has not just been to give practical ideas, but to kind of start with theological ideas and then move to practical ideas. So when we talk about this idea of messiness and why life is messy, I want to start theologically, and it's the first point in your notes. Life is messy because people are messy, even you. Yeah, I'm messy, you're messy, we are messy. Now, our rates and occurrences of messiness may vary from person to person, depending on how wise or foolish we may be in life. All of that's gonna be in there. But messiness is just a state of all things because all people make messes. All people have to dig out of messes. All people create messy contexts because we're all incomplete people. In fact, if anything, in our humanness, we are incredibly imperfect. And that's a statement we've made as a church. We are a group of imperfect people who are redeemed by a perfect God. But we're imperfect. And we advocate for this notion because we see this in the Bible. So uh, there was this guy, the Apostle Paul. He wrote a lot of our New Testament. And one of the sections of the New Testament he wrote is this piece of literature called Romans. And in Romans, he highlights this reality. In fact, in the first three chapters, he talks about the, the, the reality of human incompleteness and messiness, and, and he kind of breaks it down in a systematic way. Now, in chapter one, he outlines all of the sinful things that happen in the world of those who may be irreligious or disbelieving. In their world, it would have been more kind of Gentile-ish. And he gives this laundry list of things. And when you read that list in chapter one, you're like, that's right, you do those things, and life is messy for you, life is messy for others, it's a terrible thing, right? That's chapter one. But then you get into chapter two. And in chapter two, Paul says, but, but there's those of us who are also religious, and we believe God's word, and we want to honor God's laws, and we too are messy, we too are sinful. Just as much as chapter one has sinners, chapter two has sinners. And sometimes chapter two, the religious sinners are judging the sinners of chapter one. And what's, that's one of their sins. And then he throws a wet blanket over it all in chapter three. And he says, here's the reality. Everyone, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And so no one is immune. No one has it all together everybody steps in it at some point. Everybody does. But here's what I love about Paul. It's not like Paul makes these statements as though we're all over here in this category and then Paul is the one guy that's got it figured out. He's the one guy that isn't a mess. No, that's not the case. In fact, when we fast forward in Romans, we see where he, then after talking about all of our broken condition, he gets to chapters four, five, and six, starts to go into chapter seven, and he's talking about how Jesus has paid it all, Jesus has done the work, Jesus is our solution, all these things. And then he gets into chapter seven, and, and we see this then kind of unique glimpse that we rarely get of this particular person. We see a transparency and authenticity and openness about his own struggles and battles. So in chapter 7, he's talking about the Old Testament law, God's truth to the people of Israel. And in there, he's talking about both the intent and the limits of the law. He says the intent is to show that we're imperfect. The intent is to show that we're messy. 
but its limit is it can't solve our messy problem. It can highlight that we have a mess, but it can't fix the mess. That's kind of where he's at. And then he decides to go into this kind of testimonial about his own struggle. And this is why I love this section, because I see an honesty and earnestness in Paul that I resonate with. Now, some people want to debate this passage and say, well, I think Paul's describing himself before Jesus. But the tense is all present tense. It's like he's writing this letter. He gets to this point and says, hey, can I just tell you my practical struggle? And I think what he's doing is marrying everything he's just looked at. Everybody sins. Jesus came to deal with our sin. Jesus came to free us from our sin. And even though we're free, we still struggle. I think that's the heart. And so listen to his words and see if this resonates with you. He says, the trouble is not with the law, for it's spiritual and it's good. He says, the trouble is with me, for I am all too human a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I'm doing is wrong, it shows that I agree that the law is good. So it highlights my problem, but I keep falling into my problem. He says, so I'm not the one doing the wrong. It's the sin that's living within me. That's what does it. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it any way. Do you feel that sense of frustration within self? He says, but if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing the wrong. It's the sin that's living in me that does it. He says, I have discovered the principle of life that is this. I want to do what is right, and I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all of my heart, but that there is another power within me, in me that's warring with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Again, I, I think this is just a human glimpse into Paul's frustration. I, I, I think we should see it in the openness and the honesty that it is. It's like he's just warring on this. See, for me, this is an encouragement, not because I like to watch somebody that's beating themselves up a little bit, but because I go, I feel this. I know this particular circumstance, and I love that there's somebody else that I can read in the Bible who has this same sense of just transparency, where you see this blend of faith and want and failure and grief and honesty and exasperation all rolled into one. And he kind of takes us up to this precipice and we see him in this space of self-defeat. Like, I want to, but I don't want to. I, I love this and I hate that, but I do what I hate and I don't do what I love and all this tension and stress. And then he flips the script out of nowhere and he declares, but thank God in these spaces of my brokenness, thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's so good. That's so fresh to me, right? Because it's like, despite my messes, I know the answer is Jesus. It's like Sunday school. When you're in Sunday school and your teacher asks you a question, but your mind was elsewhere, and they ask what the answer is, and you say, Jesus, it's always right, right? And that's kind of this here. Uh, for, for all of our screw-ups, all of our goofiness, all of our incompleteness, all of our inconsistency, what's the answer? Jesus is the answer. And the reason Jesus is the answer to all of our messes is because there's a simple reality that Jesus came for messy people. That's the second point in your notes. He came for messy people. 
In fact, this is one of the central features of the incarnation. It's like God says, I'm going to enter into the human condition. I'm going to be with them in their mess because I care about them. And I've come for the messy people of life. This is the mission of Jesus. As soon as he hits the ground, he's hitting up and hanging out with very broken individuals. In fact, there's this great scene in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2, right? And and, and so Jesus befriends a person that nobody else wants to be friends with. The guy is a turncoat. He's a traitor to his own community. We would call them tax collectors, but you have to understand, a tax collector would basically, uh, on behalf of the Romans, take money from his own people, the Jews, give that money to the Romans so the Romans could afford to keep the Jews oppressed. That's what a tax collector is doing. And so his own hated him. He was the worst of the worst for their culture, or at least among some of the worst. But Jesus becomes friends with this guy whose primary hustle is to stab his friends in the back. And the religious establishment, the mucky mucks of the day, man, they, they would look down on these people. But see, Jesus isn't there to look down on people. Jesus is there to lift up people, to get them out of their messes, to rescue them from their brokenness. And so we see this whole scene start in verse 15 of Mark chapter 2. This man's name was Levi, the tax collector, and he invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. And so it's like, Levi's like, okay, I got all these other IRS agent friends. I'm going to invite them over. And I'm going to invite over like some mafia guys and some hookers and then the worst of the worst, some politicians. I don't know who he invites, but he invites all these bad people, right? And it says there were many people of this kind among Jesus's followers. So again, I love the way that Mark adds this little parenthesis. Oh, by the way, Jesus hung out with a lot of messy people. That was kind of his thing. But when the teachers of the religious law, who Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked the disciples, why does he eat with such scum? Right? Isn't that great? Religion rolls in, the group that's supposed to try to care for the broken, the needy, hurting, the messed up, and they're the ones judging them more than trying to reach them or care for them or love them. They're the mucky mucks who think their poop don't stink, right? That they got it figured out. But when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people, they're not the one that needs a doctor. Sick people do. I've come not to call those who think they are righteous, but rather those who know they are sinners. Now, there's a couple of things about this I really, really love. First of all, we see Jesus's heart toward our condition. He sees our condition as a sickness that needs a healer. Right, And so that's so wonderful to know, like, this is part of my problem. Part of my problem is that there's just an illness in me. Sin is kind of an illness that affects me. And Jesus is like, man, I've come to deal with your illness. I've come to enter into your messiness and lift you out of the mess. He enters into the problems that we have. This is why even in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was known. You want to know one of his labels? Right? And this was derogatory, by the way. He was a friend of sinners. The religious people, the self-righteous people, that's the label they gave him. How awful. He's a friend, a friend of sinners. But see, what we see is that he desires to be with us rather than he distances himself from us. But the other thing we see here is a contrast. Right? Again, look at the contrast. He says, I've not come for those who think they got it together. 
I've come for those who know they don't. See, here, here's the thing I was thinking about with this, just as I was trying to apply it to my own life. If I think I'm better, I'm more godly, I'm more committed, I'm more solid, I'm more stable, I'm probably not. I'm probably not. Because it's really easy to say, oh, they're the sinners and I'm the one that's, that's got it more together. That's an easy thing to do. And here's the thing, my sins may not be scandalous, but the danger is my sins may be sanctimonious. Right? A sanctimonious sin is pride, gracelessness, more critical than caring, more looking down on others in their messy brokenness than, than saying, how do I come into their world and try to be an encouragement in their broken space? See, that's the, the, the person that thinks they got it together. But Jesus says, no, I've come for the person who knows their humanness, who knows they have issues who shows grace and mercy to others because they desperately desire grace and mercy in their own life because of their brokenness. See, that's the heart that Jesus can heal. That's the heart that Jesus can help. That's the heart that Jesus can and does restore. And these are the type of people that know they need his grace daily. A lesson I learned years ago, probably 25 years ago, came from a book by Jerry Bridges. It was so eye-opening. And, and he kind of has this statement in the book where he says, you know what? On our best, most spiritual, most godly, most solid days, you get up early, you pray for an half an hour, you read your Bible, you drink it all in, you memorize everything, you walk out, you have a solid day. He goes, man, you are still as much a mess on that day as your worst day. Because we are all held by the grace of God. We are always going to be incomplete. There are things I don't realize about myself. There are ideas I hold that are wrong. There's going to be attitudes that I think are really, really good. And God's like, oh, I see that attitude. It's really bad. Like all of that's going to be in there. And so every day we are held by grace. Every day we should know we need the healer for our messiness. In other words, every day we should wake up saying, I am I am completely reliant on the gospel of grace, not just to save me, but every day to grow me and secure me and mold me into being more like Jesus. And perhaps that's the other element of this. As much as we need that grace of Jesus in our lives for our messiness, we want to think, act, and live like Jesus as we interact with others' messiness too. Instead of thinking we're righteous, no, knowing, knowing we're sinners, and we need his healing. We need his help. And so in lightning speed today, we're going to look at both of those. We're going to look at how we seek Jesus in our mess and how we act like Jesus in the messes of other people's lives. Both are going to be true. As we're going to start introspectively first, we're going to seek Jesus or be seeking Jesus to bless our mess because we need him to bless our mess, because we all have those messes, right? We're all going to have kind of times where we we kind of enter into roughness in life, where things fall apart or blow up in our face, or, man, our souls kind of sink because of something. And in those spaces, we need to remember some things. The first thing we need to remember is that Jesus is with you in your mess. He's with you, right? Whether your mess is self-inflicted, or it's other-inflicted, or it's circumstantially inflicted, he is with you in that space permanently and intimately. In fact, there's this closing scene uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, right? So Jesus gathers everybody together, and he gathers them because he's going to scatter them. 
He's going to send them out. We call this the Great Commission, right? This is kind of the popularized no- notion of it. But, but I also think that we could also call this the Great Butt-Kicking. Because when he sends them out into the Great Commission, he sends them into persecution, into hardship, into hatred. He sends them into spaces where they will be gathered, they will be imprisoned, they will be slaughtered for their faith. And he also sends them into spaces as Christianity grows, it's going to get really, really messy, and not everybody's going to agree on how you execute this. You're going to see where Paul and Peter get in arguments about how you do this. You're going to see where Paul and Barnabas get in arguments about how you do this. You're going to see where the early church gathers in Acts, and they're arguing about how you do this. It gets super, super messy. But in that space, what does Jesus tell them? Is he sending them out into the mess? He says, be sure of this. I, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And your mess, he's with you. Now, what's cool is sometimes you sense that. Right? You just know, right? He is in it with you. Other times you may go, I don't sense anything. He feels distant. But we have to know that all the time he's with us. In fact, it reminds me back in the Old Testament, uh, there was a dude named Joseph, right? You might remember a story. He had a coat of many colors, had lots of dreams. His brothers didn't like him. And they throw him in a hole and he gets pulled out of the hole and he gets sold into slavery in Egypt. And then he goes from having a good job to being thrown in prison for doing a good job but being accused of wrong things and eventually becomes the number two person in all of Egypt to run it. And throughout the story, you see this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord is with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. But the Lord was silent in all of those times too. There's never a record that God spoke to Joseph and said, bro, I know you're in jail, but I'm with you. It's just there was a sense of that. Right? And this is true for all of us. We just have to know that he is with us in those times. And he's not just spectating. No, he's investing. He's feeling with you. That's the next thing you need to know. Jesus sympathizes with your mess. He doesn't look when life falls apart and go, oh, whatever, that's too bad, good luck. He's not callous, he's not cold, he's not carefree. He's connected, he's invested, he's committed. Listen to Hebrews chapter two. It says, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the son also became flesh and blood. This is kind of saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come into it with you. This is how far I'm willing to go. He says, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Now, in the Old Testament, a high priest was the ambassador of God between God and the people. But Jesus takes it up a notch, and he's God the ambassador. Not just the ambassador of God, but God the ambassador to faithfully meet with us, to mercifully care for us. And and why does he come and do this and integrate in these ways? What strength and encouragement can we take from this when we jump into chapter four of Hebrews? says this high priest of ours, he understands our weaknesses. For he faced all the same testings that we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. I love this because it says, there is no mess too big for his mercy. There is no grievance too great for his grace. He understands, he cares. When we're weak, when we're tested, when we're toppled, and we're laying in a pool of our own making, you know what he says? Come to me boldly. 
And it's that idea that I love here so much. It's one of the reasons this passage resonates with me. He doesn't say come with hat in hand, head held down, sheepishly asking for mercy. He's like, no, come boldly, hold your head up and come boldly. Not because we've done anything to be bold, but because Jesus has taken a cross, Jesus has risen from the dead. And he's like, man, because of that, I'm telling you, come, come boldly. You need mercy, ask for mercy. I can't wait to give you mercy in your mess. And in, 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 in the worst circumstances, I want you to, to flock to me because I care for you. Come in your time of need. This leads to the next thing. Jesus offers you rest in your mess. This was our call to worship this morning that Amy read to us. She read it from the message. I give it to you from the New Living Translation. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear and the burden I give you is light. See, when Jesus says this, he says this in a world that is profoundly broken down with people that are boldly burdened. Burdened by religion, burdened by politics, burdened by finances, social constraints, circumstances, you name it, it's all there. And then Jesus kind of storms in and he says, Man, I want to give you rest. And this rest that he offers is not simply predicated on the fact that he has power or authority to give rest, though that's totally true. But I love the descriptors. There's been a book written about this. I haven't read the book, uh, but it's something worth noting that this is the only time where Jesus self-describes in the Gospels, right? So if you said, hey, Jesus, explain yourself to me. What are you like? He would say, I'm gentle and lowly. And if you come to me, you're gonna find rest for your souls, right? In your failure, in your hardship, in your messes, in the burdens, you will find rest from me. I don't know if you're paying attention to all the words that are stacking as we go through these passages, but I want you to to realize this is how you should understand God dealing with us in relationship to our frailties and our mistakes and our sins and our messes. He's merciful, sympathetic, grace-filled. He invites, he cares, he's gentle, he's lowly. He offers support and he offers rest. That's how we should see God in the mix of our messes. That's how we know we can come to him with security and assurance. And not just that, we can also come with hope and resource and a way forward. And that way forward is number four here in your notes, or the fourth thing. Jesus' way through the mess is best because life is better with Jesus. Like, like if we go, I want to do it his way, his way is going to be the best way through these things. Right? Because we say this a lot as a church, life is better with Jesus. And, and we say that not as a platitude, not just as a feel-goodism. No, this, the idea of this is saying, hey man, when I do it his way, when I obey his words, it's not just, oh, because I'm supposed to keep the rules, but because in doing this, man, there's freedom. We saw a little bit of this in what we just read when he offers rest. He, he says, take up my yoke and learn from me. Now, maybe if you're new to Christianity, new to the church, you look at that, take up my yoke, and you're like, the yellow part of an egg? What do I do with that? You know, why would I take up a yoke? No, in their culture, the yoke was this stock of wood that would harness two ox together so they can go through a a field and plow it. And, And what Jesus is saying is, man, if you sync your life up with me, 
if you let me carry life with you, man, this is going to bring you rest. And what that means is you're learning from me. You're taking in my word and, and you're leveraging it in your actions. And that's going to bring a huge level of rest in the endeavor. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus closes out the Sermon on the Mount and he says this. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. Like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rains come and the torrents and the floodwaters rise and beat wind against the house and all this mess, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. See, when Jesus says this, again, like I said, it's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The three most profound chapters in the Bible, in my opinion. Right? And he says, hey, if you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, you actually leverage it, you do it, you obey it. Man, this is going to strengthen you. And it's going to strengthen you from the messes of life because all that description is, is mess, right? Winds and waves and rising tides and all of these things. All of that is in there. And what Jesus is in essence saying is, you know what? Man, if you take into account everything I've just taught here, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and you do it, it's going to cause you to take high roads when you're tempted to take the low road to solve your problem. And if you lean into it, even though it's counterintuitive, it will actually bring the freedom that you most seek and the rest you most desire. Because here's the thing I have learned, and this is why I love the Sermon on the Mount so much. When you have messy relationship life, turn to the Sermon on the Mount. It's got answers. When you have messy financial life, turn to the Sermon on the Mount. It has answers. When you have messy married life, guess what? Sermon on the Mount has answers. It's amazing how much, when I think about all the different dynamics in play, even all the things we learned in the series, I can look at that message that Jesus preached and I go, man, that's how you get through the messiness of life. It anchors you for those times. Both, both anchors you so maybe you don't fall into some of the messes you might, and it also anchors you when you enter into messes and you want to weather them well. All of that is true. But the other part of this is not just that it anchors us for our own issues, but it also gives us an anchoring so we can be an anchor for others in their issues. It gives us stability and security so that we can be a resource to others in their messy lives. And so that kind of sets us up for the second anger of this whole idea this morning, which is how can we do this for others? How can we be the right resource for them? And that has to do with this next point in your notes. Seek Jesus to bless others in their mess. And, and notice that. We're, we're, seek Jesus. is like this is what we have to do on a daily, regular basis if we're going to do this well in the lives of other people. Because here's the thing. Um, what we don't want in the mix as we're dealing with our friends or loved ones or whatever who are going through really kind of messy stuff, we don't want our opinions to mess things up. We don't want our biases. We don't want our actions to be on display. No, we want to be able to say, hey man, in that space, I want to be a resource for Jesus. I want to act like him and think like him and react like him when I'm dealing with friends and loved ones so I can be a helpful person to them. And so I'm going to give these in rapid fire way. How do we deal with people in their mess? We've learned how we deal with things in our mess. Here's the first thing. Display the golden rule. Display the golden rule in other people's messes. And the golden rule, I, I believe, this is just my personal opinion, but I think it's about empathy and understanding. See, the difference between empathy and sympathy is sympathy says, oh, I pity you and your problem. Empathy says, I feel with you. 
in your problem. That's a better space to be in. What is the golden rule? Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, do to others whatever you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. Here's what I've learned in my own life. When somebody does something that I think is dumb, foolish, destructive, it's very easy for me to be very self-righteous and say, you're dumb and destructive and stupid. It's easy for me to be frustrated at them, to react to them, to kind of be put out with them because of their decisions and their consequences or whatever else. But, but as much as possible, what I need to do when I'm in a space with that person is say, man, if I were them, how would I want others to deal with me? Right? Because it's very easy. It's very easy to not think that way. It's very easy to just go, Mom, I'm just going to dump it on you. But, but if I think like, hey, if I really made a big mistake, and maybe I didn't even fully realize the scope of my mistake, how would I want people to, to come alongside me? How would I want people to talk to me about it? I, I, that's a different way of looking. That's the golden rule. So when we're dealing with other people's messes, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Hurt for others' mess more than judge their messiness. This is about dispositions, but hurt for their mess more than you judge their messiness. All right, so again, going to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, famous passage. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Notice three times he's trying to make the point. Don't judge. If you do it, it's going to be bad. You do it this way, it's going to be bad. When I was looking at this the other day, I realized that this this statement he makes here is, is related to the, the golden rule, right? It has a, this kind of duality to it where the golden rule says, hey man, treat others as you want to be treated. And then this says, and to the degree you treat them with judgment, God will treat you with judgment. See, this is really sobering when I think about this. Like, okay, so let me get this straight. It's like a choose your own adventure. To the degree I'm judgmental, God's like, great, you're creating your own measuring rod that I will apply to you as you do this to others in the negative, right? This is where we go, oh, okay, wait, this is why I don't want to judge. I don't want to just stack the deck against me. This is, again, like I said, a sobering idea. He says, but beyond this, why would you want to worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. He's not saying that you don't deal with it, what he's saying is, man, you, you want to make sure you have a clear-mindedness as you deal with it. Because if we're overly critical, or we have a critical attitude, or we think that their speck is worse than my plank, or I don't have a plank, they just have a speck, he's like, man, you want to make sure that you are in healthy space. Because what we don't want to do is be judgmental. We do want to be judicious, Right? Judicious says, hey, I see the problem. Judgmental is, I judge you for your problem. I look down on you on your problem. But to be judicious says, oh, I see the problem, and I want to be caring in this versus be harsh in this. I confess, I remember, this isn't all that long ago, just a few years ago, but there was a person I was dealing with, big messes. They dug their own holes. Uh, this was on them, and I had a meeting with them. And I was everything the opposite of what Jesus says here. I mean, I confess. Like, they had issues. They didn't even see the magnitude of their issues. But I wasn't coming in caring. I was a bit condescending. I was calling them out. And there wasn't heart-filledness in it. There was a, almost a sense of, like, pride in my, I'm catching you and your broken thinking. Awful. Just awful. 
I didn't help the circumstance. I didn't bring any relief. I wasn't trying to deal with the speck in their eye. I was beating them with the plank that I just pulled out of my own eye. And I beat them with it and shoved it back in my eye, right? This is sometimes the risk and the dilemma. And so Jesus says, man, you you don't want to do that. You want to hurt for others more than you simply judge them. This leads to the next thing. When possible, help others in their mess. Galatians 6, dear brothers and sisters, if any believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly, I feel like there was a dude that said this someplace, you should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. This is super self-explanatory. I don't have to break it down, but what I love about this is that it links it to the law of Christ. You know, what's the law of Christ? Well, we don't really know. Paul like, says it like everybody then knew. We have to kind of guess what he's getting at. But if I was to boil down the real essence of what Jesus did, is he comes because God loves the world. God sends him to love on the world. He loves it so much he takes the sins of the world upon himself and in selfless, sacrificial grace gives himself away in our mess, because of our mess, to free us from our mess. And in that sense, I go, man, that seems to be the law of Christ. I want to give myself away to others selflessly and sacrificially loving them in their mess and helping them to get through their mess because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. But in this, I think you also have some discernment too. So as much as when possible we want to help others in their mess, we have to, have to also remember when necessary, have boundaries with others' messes. Boundaries. Now there's all kinds of books about boundaries. Boundaries. But the idea is there are some relationships or some dynamics, they're, they're just broken enough or just complicated enough that you and that mess or you and that person, maybe there needs to be a little bit of an insulator, a buffer between you and that because it's maybe beyond your pay grade or even what we just saw in Galatians 6 there. Uh, you're getting pulled into being tempted to either do things with them or respond to them in ways that would not be Christ-honoring, all of that. Man, we want to make sure we have boundaries. Because Jesus talks about boundaries. Back in Matthew chapter 7, when he was talking about judging and not judging and how we go about this in a right way, he says, I don't want you to judge, but I want you to be judicious again. What's he saying again in verse 5? First get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. And then immediately he says, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. Now, some people read this and go, sweet, I can call people pigs and dogs. Now, this is great. This is, I'm not judgmental at all. I'm just calling them pigs and dogs. No, that's not the point. Right? This idea was familiar to their culture as animals that are unclean and pearls that are precious and beautiful. And what he's talking about here is a boundary. He's like, so I don't want you to judge, but I want you to be judicious in such a way that there are going to be some relationships, some people in their messiness that are going to retaliate against you, that are going to reject you, they're going to fight you. And he says, when that's the case, you know better. Just don't get into it. Skip that one. Right? Maybe you've talked to them before and you know it's just going to go south if you do it again and they're going to gaslight you. They're going to try to bait you into an argument. They're going to try to drag you down. They're going to condemn you for something. And this is where he's saying, be wise. Be wise and know that sometimes you just have to have a boundary and stop before it starts. And that's okay too. It's okay to have those boundaries. Now here's the thing about a boundary. I just want to just add this in really fast. Um, don't set boundaries as punishments with people. You know, don't, don't let it be retaliatory. You're doing it because it's the best way 
to try to bring some level of sanity to messy things. And, and you're not trying to exacerbate the problem, so you just pull back. And then here's the thing I'd say, if you have to pull back with a boundary, then you pray, God, do a work here because I hurt for them. I'm not mad at them, I hurt for them. I'm broken for them, I care for them, and I wanna see them out of their mess and into freedom, and Jesus, you gotta find a different way other than me, and that's okay. That's totally okay. Because as I've been saying throughout this whole thing, man, life, life is messy. Our own lives are messy, the lives of other people are messy, and when we intersect those, that's a mess. But the courage we can take is what Paul said back in Romans 7 when he said, but thank God we have Jesus Christ our Lord because Jesus wants to meet us in the mess. Now right now I want to ask everybody just to bow their heads and close their eyes. And as you do, I, 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 I like to say there's different, different layers in the room, not categories maybe, but layers of people as it relates to Jesus. And there's some in this room that you're a Jesus follower, but you're in the middle of a mess. And you might be in a mess of your own creation or a mess that's been thrust upon you, and you know that you're responding as best as you can in godly ways. That's awesome. There's going to be others that go, I'm not responding great. And maybe this is the morning where you go, Jesus, help me to respond great. Help me to respond like you. And there's going to be others in the room that you go, man, I don't follow Jesus. My, my life feels like a mess. I don't follow Jesus. And I encourage you, man, Jesus is, is the rest that you need from your mess. Right? And, and if you want that rest in him, it's a prayer away. I say this every week. If you say, Jesus, I, I made a mess of things. I have uh, this condition, this reality of sin. I've gone my own way. Do my own thing. Jesus, rescue me from the mess. I want to follow you. He hears you. He rescues you. He draws you into his family and he moves you forward. If you make that your prayer today, we want to know that there'll be uh, a tile in our app that you can go on to and say, I made that decision. We would love to know that. And for those of us who follow Jesus of our prayer today, is Jesus, forgive me for the messiness. Bring me the rest that I need. Man, that's awesome. I pray that with you. And so Jesus, right now, I come as one who also needs rest, who also has messes who also has sins, mistakes, and failures, I thank you that your grace is what we need every day. Your mercy is what we seek. So we all come to your throne with boldness. And we all seek that which we need from you every minute of every day. Your presence, your strength, and your guidance. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We need you in your good name. Amen.